DMV family, welcome to another episode of the Microphone Check Podcast, a podcast for and by Washington Nationals fans. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this new episode of the Microphone Check Podcast. And welcome back. I am L. And this is your boy T. And for this week's episode, we are going to give you an overview of the Nats open, opening series against the Atlanta Braves. We will have our live from Nats Park segment. We will give you a breakdown of each of the games in the Nats Braves series. We'll have our This Week in Sports segment, as well as the fan favorite, Who's Not Invited to the Cookout. All right, Taylor. So let's start out and talk about this opening day opening week series as everyone knows the opening series against the uh, Mets was canceled certainly the uh, impact of COVID had a big in effect on the team uh, Major League Baseball has announced however that the Mets series will be made up uh, later on the summer so for you fans who have tickets to the April 1st game those tickets will be valid for Saturday, June 19th. It's going to be a one o'clock doubleheader. So that'll be only seven, seven innings. It'll be part of a split admission doubleheader. Um, additionally, for the April 3rd game that was postponed, that game will now be made up on June the 28th at 7.05. And then if you had tickets for the April 4th game, you will be able to see that game on Saturday, September 4th. So, for all you Mets fans who are here in the DMV area, you can um, check out the, those postponed games at that time. So although we did not play the Mets for our opening series, we did get an opportunity to open our series at home, which was mm -hmm. a blessing, against the Atlanta Braves. Mm -hmm. So because of the quarantine that some of the players um had to uh, be under because of the restrictions. They couldn't play. So we had starters that we had some of our normal starters, but then some of them um, had to sit out. You want to talk about who started the series for us in that first opening day game? Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, the lineup was actually uh, one where it featured some, you know, common names, but some of the new uh, nationals that may have came on recently or ones that actually uh, came up from the minors. So, Leading off uh, during the opening game was uh, was Victor Robles. Uh, in second was uh, Trey Turner, then uh, Juan Soto. Fourth was Zimmerman, then Castro, then uh, Herman Perez, who I believe is uh, one of our bench players that recently came on. Um, and then uh, Andrew Stevenson, Jonathan Lucroy was eighth, and then the pitcher slot at the on, at the ninth. Which was uh was was Schwerzer. so, um you know it, it was a good mix of regular starters, kind of your bench players, and with Jonathan Lucroy who literally just came in uh, to the team probably I think forty eight hours before the game even started. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Um, actually, he ended up playing a little bit. He played actually in the opening series. He pitch ran for Zimmerman late mm -hmm. in the game when they needed some speed on the bags. But then he also played third base. 
Um, mm-hmm. We thought we thought that Kibun might get an opportunity to start in light of the fact that uh, it appears that Harrison is out because of the quarantine restriction, and we thought maybe Kibun would get another opportunity to get in there and play third base. But it, it sounds to me like they really have some confidence issues with Kibun, so they brought in Hernan Perez. And mm-hmm. overall, I think he did a good job in the game. You know, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But overall, he was he was serviceable at third base. Uh, I think that they would have wanted a little bit more uh, at the bat for him. But nonetheless, uh, I thought that having Hernan Perez in there was okay. Uh, yeah. But Lucroy at catcher. Yeah, and he's uh, another guy that came in actually last minute too. Again, he was one of those guys where I think he had to uh, – come in 48 hours before the game. Uh, we just signed him to a minor league deal. And then he came in 48 hours before the game, had to go through COVID testing, and actually did really well. Um, what did you think about his game, Well, Yeah, I thought he did extremely well. I mean, he caught Scherzer in the first game. I, I, I heard that they literally met each other for the first time that day, which means mm-hmm. that they did not have a chance to really – throw together typically pitchers and catchers like to work together so that they know each other's rhythm and things like that i do understand they spoke a lot over the telephone and got a game plan together i thought the game plan went quite well uh, I, I think he did really well with respect to um catching zimmerman and some of the other relief pitchers again mm-hmm. he only met zimmerman i mean he only met scherzer uh, that day before mm-hmm. he started, but he had literally had not met the relief pitchers at all until they until they got on the mound. Yep, yep, and that's just a sign of Jonathan Lucor has been a guy that you know has been around the league. He's thirty four. Uh, I remember his time during the Brewers. He was always a consistent um, catcher, um, a veteran, and he already has a feel for you know pitchers anyway. So. You know, I would have had some reservation if he was a 25, 26-year-old guy, but Jonathan Lucroy is Lucroy is a is a hard-nosed veteran. He kind of knows how to how to how to you know manage a game. Um, the one thing that you could probably tell, and this is something that um, you know, if you know, uh, you don't really look closely or notice, um, you could kind of tell that Scherzer and Lucroy weren't on the same page initially because there were a lot of solo home runs at the beginning of the game. You so think? that told me. <laughs> <You think? laughs> yeah. I mean, there were, there first were like three, right. First, first pitch, pitch <laughs> right. Right. First pitch of the game. And then you had three and three solo home runs in the, in the first two innings. But, you know, once they, they worked through the first three to four innings, you can start to see, they started getting the rhythm with calling the game. And that's kind of, when you have a, a hard-nosed veteran, uh, a Cy Young winner on the mound, and you have a hard-nosed veteran behind the plate, eventually they're going to figure it out. And I hope, you know, once, um, you know, our starting catcher comes back, um, that we keep Luke Hoard because he's going to be valuable down the stretch here. I totally agree with that. Now, now let's talk about that sort of first pitch. Is that a situation where Scherzer misread the sign that Luke Corey gave him, or was that a situation where he missed the location of that pitch? Because you, it, you, you got it. You can't tell me that he that that the goal was to lay it out there 
that perfectly to allow this guy. Yeah, to... when I when I saw it on TV, it looked like the the spot from my recollection, the spot was down into the left in the left corner, and it just seemed like Scherzer just left it up. It looked it just looked like a fastball he left up, and it was right down the middle, and uh, I believe it was Acuna got it. So. And with, with guys like Acuna on the Braves, you cannot miss spots. You can't. He will hurt you. There's no doubt about that. But, again, that could be attributed to, and, and Lala, you know, um, as being an average Nationals fan, Schwarzer is a guy where he doesn't like things being thrown off. And having that pause for COVID and not being able to go those three days, I think threw him off a little bit. But it only lasts there about three or four innings, and then yeah. he locked back in. Well, one of the things that made me the most nervous is that you have the Braves team coming in here to Nats Park off of three losses. You know that they're going to, from the very first pitch, try to make a statement. Mm-hmm. So those bats were swinging. They were yes. hunting. They were hunting fastballs from the very first pitch. Absolutely. And my sense is that Scherzer was trying to strike people out from the Mm -hmm. very first pitch. And that combination, I mean, overall, Scherzer adjusted, right? He ended up with, I believe, nine or so strikeouts. Like that, even that sort of dynamic, he had like nine strikeouts, but four home runs. He hadn't given up four home runs in a game ever, I believe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the one thing, though, that F.P. Sanchangelo said on the broadcast was this. Solo home runs don't kill you. They may hurt you, but they don't kill you. And, you know, sometimes I disagree with F.P. on some of his analysis, but he was right today. He was right that day. The yeah. solo home runs, they did hurt, but they did not kill us. So I think that's kind of a, a word of wisdom is. It's okay if we give up a solo home run here and there. But when you have men on base, that's when it really hurts you. Well, I mean, that's that's something that we try to do, right? We, we're trying mm-hmm. to get men on base so that we can have our big hitters get that home run or get the men. Uh, when mm-hmm. we talk about getting men on base, Victor Robles leading mm-hmm. off, he mm-hmm. he's looking good as a leadoff hitter. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. And this is one of the pe- this is one of the players that I think, you know, came in, he had a clear mandate from uh the manager, from Davey. He had a clear mandate from management. You need to be more patient at the plate. That's what I think they told him going in out of the fall into the spring training. They told Victor Robles, you need to be more patient at the plate. And he definitely did that. I think his approach um, in that opening game and even in the next two games, which we'll talk about, Victor did a good job of being patient. I think last year he was really, I think the term would be he was rushed at the plate. Like Mm -hmm. he wanted to get on quick. He was swinging at the first pitch a lot of the times. You know, he wanted to get that, make that impact quicker in, um, in the pitch count. Uh, rather than sitting back and waiting for his pitch. And I think he definitely did that. Yeah, I think he'll ultimately be even uh, a better leadoff man than Trey Turner was. And Trey Mm -hmm. Turner has been incredibly awesome in the last two years leading off. 
But because he's showing that power at the plate Mm -hmm. now, now we have the benefit of if you can just somehow get Robles on 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 first base. I mean, he he was very patient. I think he overall for the opening series, I think he had three or four walks in the game. Mm -hmm. You would have never seen that last year. Nope, absolutely. So then then you have uh, Robles getting on, stealing base. You have Trey Turner, who has been consistently the last two years, a very good batter. And now he's showing that home run pop. I mean, that home run that that he had in the opening series game definitely gave us, you know, gave us the momentum that we needed to to win that game. Absolutely. And I think one thing that I did question uh, Davion was that flipping of the order. I initially thought, hey, you put Trey on. Trey has been more consistent as a hitter than Victor Robles. This is me thinking a past trends from last year and the year before. Why would you put Victor as the top and then Trey Turner as the second? Well, now I see why Davey did that. It's because Victor yeah. Robles they, they is more patient, and Trey now has yeah. even more pop in his bat. So I agree with what Davey right. did with making it one, two, Victor Robles and Trey Turner. And then you have Juan Soto behind Turner with mm-hmm. that protection. So that means you have to. That means Trey Turner is seeing pitches because they don't want to end up with no outs or only one out having to pitch to Soto, right? Mm-hmm. And now you can't walk him. So yep. you got to try to get that force out with Turner, and Turner's a patient, patient batter as well. So mm-hmm. if he sees a strike, he's going to – nine times out of ten, he's going to get a hit or mm-hmm. he's going to advance the runner at the very mm-hmm. least. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think that the starting out the gate with Robles, then Turner, then Soto, then Zimmerman. I mean, Soto, uh, uh, Juan Soto, so he struggled a little bit coming out of spring training. Mm -hmm. Uh, You didn't see his consistent high batting average in spring training. And then a little bit in, you also saw that continue in his first couple of at-bats in that opening day game. Mm -hmm. Um, But good hitters do what they do, right? You know. Absolutely. When the game is on the line, he got that major hit, which was really good to see. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you're seeing Juan Soto on the cover of ESPN Magazine, why you're seeing him, you know, in Sports Illustrated. You know, his clutch hits like that. And he's showing why, you know, like I said in episode one, uh, Juan Soto is probably going to be the first billionaire baseball player. And, and you're seeing why he may become that is – when the when the chips are down, it's time to really, you know, uh, uh, bring in a clutch hit. He's going to do it. So, um, you know, Juan stuck with it. He struggled, like you said, Lala. He struggled in spring training. He struggled at the first five at bats, but he still came through when it when we needed it in game one. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about who else. Who else said, you know. He played and played well. Zimmerman, um, he had two solid hits in that first game. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had an amazing spring training. And it looks like, I think at first base, we're going to be okay. I don't mm-hmm. know how long um, Josh Bell is going to be out. But Zimmerman, Zimmerman is showing that he can handle playing first base on a regular basis so long as they're not back-to-backs, right? Right, exactly. He, he can't. 
He's not a double-headed guy at all. Right, <laughs> right. exactly. And he, he was kind of open about that, actually, to the Washington Post recently, just saying, you know, I can still play. I just can't play back-to-back days. You know, so right. it's good that he's being honest, um, being open and honest that, you know, he's not what he used to be, but he can still contribute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we saw, uh, who was it? Uh, Perez had a had a really nice hit. Uh, mm-hmm. In that opening day series, I mean, he looks like a guy that they he's a, he's just a straight infielder. He can mm-hmm. play first base. He can play second base uh, and and he can do a good job at it. So it's good to have that that um, type of player in our in our in our in our system that we mm-hmm. can turn to when we need to. Hopefully we won't need to turn to him uh, too often. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and even when you talk about this game, Carter Keboom was on the roster for the opening day game. So because we needed him out of necessity and he pitch hit and actually had a really crucial at bat. Uh, He saw quite a few pitches and actually earned a crucial walk in that game. So, you know, I'm not saying that he's here to stay because of that at bat, but the patience that he showed in that moment. I thought is encouraging. Absolutely. And it just shows, again, that Carter Keyboom just needs some time, you know, uh, to, to kind of get that confidence at the plate. Um, I, I did, you know, see Carter, uh, you know, during spring training. And I think you can agree with me. Lala is out of spring training. He needed a little bit more time in the minors starting out. Yeah. And maybe this situation with, you know, COVID and, and you know, some of the players getting – uh, catching the virus was a blessing in the size for Carter where, you know, he doesn't have that initial um, letdown um, of being put in the minors at the beginning of the season. He was actually able to taste um, major, major league baseball for a little while, get his confidence back up and then go back down and work on his skills. So um, I definitely, no, go ahead. Yeah, I think that I think that's really important. I mean, he comes from a family of baseball players. His mm-hmm. brother was what a catcher in the system for for many for for a couple of years. And I think he really mm-hmm. just got cut last last season. But mm-hmm. out of all the brothers, he is the pros, He's the key boom brother who's supposed to make it. And you start to wonder to what extent is mentally he's putting pressure on himself. When two or three years ago in the minors, he was literally raking in the minors. The, he would have come up sooner had a, an, a, had a position been available. But then when you sit down thinking, okay, it's my time, it's my time. And then when it is your time and all the, the spotlight is on you, sometimes that can have a mental impact that, that it's hard to adjust for. So I'm hoping that this experience will enable him to – take the positive aspects out of it so that because we're going to need this young fella. We go, yes. We're going to need him at some point. Um, so we're hoping that we'll keep, keep his confidence level up and allow him once the uh, minor leagues open back up to get some at bats when we get our players, our normal starters back. Absolutely. Absolutely. So overall, what did you think about uh, the pitching um, for, for that opening series game against the Braves? What did you think overall about Scherzer? I thought Scherzer, um, honestly, other than the four solo home runs, um, he did fantastic for, um, you know, opening uh, opening day game that was delayed by three days and with a different opponent. 
Um, again, you know, and having a, a catcher that you're not familiar with. Right. Um, this is this is you know this game showed why you pay Scherzer the amount of money, even though when he got the big contract, he was a little older than you would usually give a, a high dollar amount uh, contract to. I mean, the, the guy had nine strikeouts with four solo home runs and five hits. You can't ask for, for much more and pitch six innings in your first start that you can't, you know, from a guy that I think Scherzer is what, 35, 36? He's 36. 36. Um, you can't ask much more from a from a first start from from a pitcher uh, than what he delivered. Yeah, and I kind of like a little bit that he struggled and came back and 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 adjusted because mm-hmm. he is all pride, right? For him to stew and wait five games after giving up four home runs that we have lost, that would have been bad, but. He's all pride. So we know the next start that he has, he, it's going to be on from from sort of the, the, the very first pitch, unlike this particular game. It just makes me think about in the World Series where he was scheduled to start. And at the last minute, his I think it was his back flared up and he could not start that game. We were like, what the heck? I mean, Joe Ross did an awesome job to fill in for him mm-hmm. in the playoffs, but it just – it makes you think, like, thank you, Scherzer, for all you've done for us over the years. But at some point, he's no longer going to be that number one ace. He's going to be a serviceable number three guy. And I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because a, a number three guy is still valuable. You Absolutely. know, having a, the top number three guy in your rotation is very valuable. So, you know, again, you know, Father Tom is undefeated. But, you know. Sometimes there's some guys that can kind of head it off for a while, and it seems that Scherzer can definitely do that. Well, well, here's the key. He's a free agent after this year. Would, mm-hmm. If you're the GM and you've got the pocket um, strings to sign or not, are you re-signing him to another three years at, what, uh, $22 million, $30 million a year? Are you doing that? If I was, if I was the black Mike Rizzo, what would I do? <laughs> what would you do? Uh, <laughs> I would, I would, I would, I would definitely probably do it. And the reason why I would do it is, you have straws long term. You have, um, you know, uh, you having a second or third guy that may not still have all of his stuff there, but still has Cy Young level pitching, even at. 37, 38 years old, that's still very valuable. And also it's the example that he's setting for the other pitchers on in the rotation and in the bullpen too. Don't you know, there's exactly, a lot. That's exactly my thoughts too. It's yeah, the impact that he has on those younger pitchers coming mm-hmm. up. Absolutely. And that's kind of the thing that the Nationals in, in, in baseball GM circles is known for is them raising – pitchers through their mountain league system, making them really good and then either keeping them or training them all for more assets. So Scherzer is an important piece, not only for the current rotation, but for the young players coming up. Cause I'm sure he's in there giving them advice on this is what you should look for. This is what you should look for. And that's more valuable than, than any coach or manager you can hire. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point. Now, you know, w- so we talk about the younger, the the younger pictures that he may influence. Would you think about, you know, Finnegan, Swero, McCown, how they did? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you know, um, the younger guys in the rotation, and, and this has been kind of the 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 trend with the Nationals for a while. Is your younger hands in the bullpen? They they're up and down, and that that's. That's across baseball. You know, being a relief pitcher is a hard, hard job. You're coming in most times when you're coming in, you're either holding the lead barely or you're cleaning up somebody else's mess. But you so, got one job. You got one, you got one job. job. That one is job. true. One you job. got one job. But, you know, Finnegan, um, you know, he gave up two hits in a run. So, obviously, that was a successful um, Swero only got one batter. I think he got through it pretty clean. Um, he didn't give up a, a hit, but he did struggle in the later games, which we will talk about. Um, and McCown walked the batter, so he struggled. So, you know, again, it's up and down with the young guys, and you kind of expect that early in the season. Yeah, I, I was thinking, so when Swero came into the game, he came in because we needed one more out. Mm-hmm. And you know, with the new MLB rules, it's you have to face at least three bat- batters. So we're mm-hmm. sitting there wondering, okay, so it's one out to get. Will we see Swero come back in for two more batters, or will he just face this? Or is it is the rule w- one inning or three batters? And mm-hmm. as we found out, it is one inning or three batters because he did not come back um, after that one batter. Yep. Yeah. And so, I, I think I, I was always confused about that rule, too. Like, I didn't understand, you know, like you said, is it three consecutive batters, even if the inning turns over or is it just to the end of the inning? So yeah. I think, um, you know, that's that's a, a lot of interesting things that you could do with that, though. Yeah. Like you could, sure. you could have it where, you know, there is a certain say you're in the eighth or you're in the seventh. Excuse me, because the eighth is really Hudson's inning. But. If you're in the seventh and you know a guy, you know, uh, Finnegan or McCown, he does well uh, for two batters and then the third batter, he may struggle. Right. You, There may be some strategy behind that and then having Swero just face one batter. So that would be something to look, you know, continue to keep an eye on is if Davey makes adjustments like that and it sticks with almost a pattern of pitchers that he goes to in those type of ways. Yeah, that, uh, there was definitely a matchup situation going on there because why not just have McCown come in for all three batters, right? Mm-hmm. You know, come in for that batter, and then he came in f- for that um, next inning and then faced three batters. Why not just have him come in for that one batter? Clearly right. there was a matchup situation going on. And then, you know, perhaps in a situation where, okay, we're going to give Swero this one batter because he, the statistics say he matches up well against this batter, and then mm-hmm. we still have him available for the rest of the series. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so that 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 is sort of the, the lineup of the players that we saw, but there were some players that we did not see uh, at left field. We would have normally seen Swarber, our new our new players, Swarber and Bell, uh, mm-hmm. at left field. Um, Stevenson ended up getting the start, and then at first base, um, you mentioned that it was uh, Zimmerman, and later on it was uh, Perez. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Harrison was out. 
Gomes, mm-hmm. our normal catcher, was out. Our backup catcher, Avila, is out. Um, and then uh, Mercer was out. So mm-hmm. we um, we saw quite a few people who, who, who were out. Yeah, yeah. And it is the, the one good thing, actually, is that um, that shows you even when we have four, three, four, five regular guys out of the lineup, um, we can still compete. Yeah. And the Braves were full full strength, yeah. and we still competed. So that's a good sign to me, not only that we're being managed well, but that the bench guys are guys in the minor leagues that if there is an injury later on in the season or if somebody tests positive moving forward in the season, there's somebody that can fill that slot and still have the team do well. So it's encouraging to me. Yeah, to come out with a 6-5 win after giving up four uh, home runs and to still win that game in opening day, essentially against the brave, I think was a good sign. Again, Mm -hmm. we did not have, we also um, are without our pitchers, Corbin Lester in hand as our closer. So Mm -hmm. um, in all that, that opening day game was, was really a a great experience. from Nats Park. I would love to give you all a, uh, a live segment each week uh, that is literally from Nats Park. Of course, I have to record it and um, upload it to this podcast, but we're going to find a way to do it. But until then, I want to let you guys know what the experience is like at Nats Park. So every week, we're going to go to the park and just tell you what it was like. So opening day, if you've never, ever gone to opening day, you must it put, place that on your bucket list. Opening day is unlike any other day uh, in, in the season. There are 162 total games. There are 80, 80 home games. But opening day is always super special. It's This year would have been, um, or last year, we didn't get an opportunity to have opening day because they were not allowing any fans in the park. So essentially this was the first time that fans were allowed into the park since we, we were in the stands uh, during the world series. So to just be back in that Nats park after experiencing that world, our first world series win, it was super phenomenal, phenomenal. So I think last week, Taylor, you asked how, what what the traffic might be around Mm -hmm. Nats park. And I'll tell you what, traffic on South Capitol was not bad. It was absolutely not bad getting into the stadium. So if you're driving down, you, everybody knows where South, South Capitol is, the main street getting into Nat, Nats Park that's normally backed up for all the way up to the ramp going to North Capitol um, yeah. or going to 295. That ramp was no traffic, literally. Mm. The most traffic that occurred was just because of the stop signs around the park. And people walking across the stop signs. So the streets, there were some streets blocked off around um, around the stadiums, but they were not really large cl- crowds like we would normally see. Certainly that has something to do with the fact that only 5,000 fans were um, 
permitted into the stadium. Actually, the official count, I think, was more like 4,750 because they also count the stadium staff as part of the 5,000 uh, Mark, I tell you, Mary Bowser is not playing about that 5,000. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> oh, no, she is not. <laughs> she is not playing. So um, so if you were lucky enough, like we were, to um, get into the stadium and go to uh, the opening day game, you realize that um, you could not take any type of bag whatsoever into the park. Um, I attempted to take a little, you know, throw over your shoulder, very small um, satchel um, into the park, but it ended up having to take it back uh, to my car. They literally held up a five by seven index card. And if your back or purse was any bigger than this five by seven uh, card and it was laminated, it was so it was kind of funny <laughs> in a way. They were like, no, you could. So they give you an opportunity to take your stuff back to your car or they have lockers that are like 10 bucks, which mm -hmm. to me is a waste of money. So don't do it to yourselves. You can go <laughs> in with what you need to do is layer up, have jackets mm -hmm. with multiple pockets. I had like a vest on and a jacket and I um, stuffed, um, you know, my, my phones, my AirPods, all of that into different pockets. So you'll have to do it that way. You can still take in food. However, they can't be in a bag. So if you're going to, you know, go to Chick-fil-A or Chipotle or McDonald's or something like that and take your food in, then that's allow you to do that. But you have to literally carry it in your hand. You can mm. take water in. You can take a bottle of water in, but it can only be one bottle of water. I don't now, know. Uh-huh. Now, question for you. Is the, was the five by seven rule just for the bags? That was just implementing this year, correct? Just this year. Just this year. This has never been that strict. I mean, the Nats, we literally give away bags right, <laughs> at the right, ballpark and right. we use those bags to put all our crap in, right? Right, right. You cannot, you can't even take in a bag that the Nats have once given you in previous seasons. And right. I don't know whether this will change when we go back to full capacity. It may have something to do with the staff is, you know, you normally have twice or three times as many people at the gates checking you out. And mm -hmm. I noticed there was only like one or two people. So it may have something to do with staff. I don't know, but listen, it, it, it was rough in there. Um, also, one of the things that's different this year as well is that for this, for, for, for now, at least through in, in April, you have to go in through an assigned gate. So mm. when you get your ticket as season plan holders, you know, everything is now electronic. Everything is on your cell phone. So your phone is loaded up on an app and you pull up the, the ticket on your phone. And on the phone now, which this was never happened before, is a designation on which gate you must enter through. And so if you don't enter in that gate, you cannot come in. So it's just, uh, again, another restriction that if you're coming to the park, make sure you look at your ticket before you um, attempt to go in because you might have to walk all the way around to the other park. Mm. Um, then once you get in, the, um, the seats were um, sectioned off in pods of two, four, six. Um, they were literally blocked off. So there was a black, like, um, plastic tape or whatever on on seats that were not being used. 
So you mm-hmm. couldn't like have, you couldn't, you couldn't just go and sit in a different seat. You literally were right. restricted to your seat. And then there were no people in front of us at all. There was no one in the row in front of us and no one in the row behind us. There mm-hmm. were four seats on each side of us and then two people on the, on the right side. And I think two people, two, two or four people on the left. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's why they're able to have 5,000 fans in because everyone is really far apart, but nonetheless, right. Even though we were far apart, it was still a family atmosphere at the park. I mean, we were air high fiving each other um, each time something exciting happened. So, uh, for your the, the the atmosphere was great. Everyone was loud and everyone was engaged. Mm. So that is just That's something good. to to keep in mind. Uh, again, for one last sort of tidbit about what happened in Nats Park. Um, the food, same food. They got the chicken baskets and, and fries, the hot dog stands. They have a few additional vendors um, that uh, they indicated would be new this season. I don't know if they're fully open yet, but in a future podcast, I will make sure that we go to these new vendor stands and um, give feedback on what they're like. Again, you order from your seat and then go pick it up. It was so crazy, mm-hmm. though. We ordered food from our seat, and I think it was like the game started at four or five. So we ordered our food literally at like four o'clock, and it said mm. they would be ready at four forty. We were like, "Huh?" <laughs> <laughs> so we, we walked over there early because I was like, "I'm not waiting for four forty to get my first beer." I'm sorry. So <laughs> walked over there, and actually, you can you can actually go a little earlier and get get your your food. Well, that's cool. So that that's the that's that's the breakdown from live from Nats Park. Oh, right, perfect, perfect, perfect. Yeah. So uh, we all go ahead. No, I was just saying uh, for the app situation. I don't know if you remember this, but way back when, this is probably 2010, 2011, The Nationals actually used to do where they would deliver food to your seats. You remember that? Yeah. Where you yeah. would order it on the app, and then they would have somebody come and deliver the food to you. I don't think they do that anymore. Or well, pre-pandemic, even before the pandemic, they stopped doing it for some reason. Yeah, and I don't know what happened with that. So last year, of course, 2020, they did not do it. But they did it at the beginning of the season in 2019. And I'll be Mm. honest with you, I saw it in some sections and not in others. So, you know, in the club, you, you see it, maybe see a little bit more. So right. what they would do is remember in the outfield, they used to have the, and they have that this now again is they had the little card in front of the seat in front of yep. you. Yep. And from that card, you could, you know, order from there. But I think they had so many issues. They scrapped it and only did it in a limited way, mm. uh, but it's back now. And literally, you know how the little, you hold your phone up against the, the little card and it'll, the it'll pop up on your phone. The yeah. reader. That's correct. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My guess is that people were, I mean, people were stealing other people's food. That's what my <laughs> thing is. Is Hello. that hey, somebody just handed me some uh some fries. Well, they're mine now. Instead Thank of passing you. them down. Yeah. Oh, and so you, you know how some of those people. Oh, I didn't know these were yours after they've already eaten it. Right. So then, what's <laughs> gonna happen? Are you gonna take it because they because it was a mistake? No. You, so yeah, I, there are a whole bunch of issues that probably occurred as a result of that. 
Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, that's that's what happened live from Nats Park. Um, we also, um, again, had a doubleheader the next day against the Braves. Uh, that the doubleheader did not go as well as the opening day game, but we still want to cover it and talk a little bit about it for our fans. Mm-hmm. So game one, the doubleheader happened on April 7th. Betty got the start and uh, he did not. It did not go well, to say the yeah. least. It, he didn't. He uh, actually only went one and two, uh, one and uh, one inning. Uh, he had six hits. He gave up six runs. He walked three people and only had one strikeout. And uh, Fetty's ERA now, because of that one inning, uh, is now at twenty-seven. So he is. Uh, he started off on the on the wrong foot and. Uh, the Nationals actually went down for nothing in the in the first inning, so we were already starting. Um, or actually, we we jumped up for one actually at the beginning of that game. Then he gave up five at the top of the second, and yeah. then it just left from there. So, and my whole thing is when you when he's giving up four runs in the first inning, why bring him back for the second inning? And no, the answer no. to that is because we don't again we don't our our bullpen is not at full strength mm-hmm. because he's literally messing up the entire bullpen by only being able to go one inning like he mm-hmm. messed up I mean and again because of COVID we're missing a lot of pictures as well had 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 we had Lester or Corbin or even um, or even Ross I think Ross is scheduled to play against the um, the Dodgers, but he, Fetty would not have gotten that start. And quite honestly, no, I'm, I'm a little tired of seeing Fetty. I'm sorry. Um, this, uh, this experiment needs to be over. Yeah. I think Fetty is more of a long arm out of the bullpen. I don't think he is effective as a starter. Um, he hasn't been over the years. He hasn't been very effective as a, a spot starter like he does here. Um, I think he is effective when you have situations where a pitcher may only get through four innings and he has to stretch it three innings to get to the seventh. You know, he's effective at things like that, but getting the start off the top, you know, he, he's not effective in that, in that uh, situation. So, you know, the, well, the, fact I, that he, I, the fact that he even made the roster was actually a result of a, 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 a hang up in the system so mm-hmm. he's in the last year. So the Nationals lost their arbitration against him. So he's no longer eligible to just now. If we put him back into the minor league, any team could pick him up, right? Right. He, right. he goes through the waiver wire. That's correct. He goes through the waiver wire. I'm saying let him go through the waiver wire because maybe we'll face one of those teams and he'll give up four runs to us. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't look at him no more. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, that, that's the thing is like, you know, teams are always so scared of, you know, when a, it, that situation happens when um, a guy comes up too many times. So like a, a guy like a Eric Fetty, they only have so many times that they can go up and back down to the minors. And with Fetty, Fetty has exercised or the team has exercised all those options for him to go up and go down in the minor leagues. And like you said, Lala, any the next time that they decide to send them down, they have to send them through the waiver wire, basically saying you're a free agent, you can go anywhere you want to go, 
if a team wants you. And for some reason, the Nationals just feel like they're scared to let him go, which I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. Well, ironically, we still had a chance to win that game, right? We still mm-hmm. had a chance to win that game. But, um, ah, you know, Finnegan let some people on base. And then Suero came in and was wild pitching. And I'm like, dude, like he was literally throwing the balls and they were hitting the ground before they crossed the plate. I mean, yeah, that was tough Swe- to watch. Yeah, and Suero sometimes gets, sometimes for some reason, he that happens. Yeah, yeah like, you know, sometimes he'll just, just throw balls straight into the ground for – for no apparent reason. And, you know, like you were, like you were saying, Lala, he gets wound up, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it seems like instead of him just pitching, he's trying to aim. He's trying to throw as hard as he can rather than just going out there and pitching. Yeah. So, and that's just a, a byproduct of, you know, again, a lot of these guys are young. Yeah. They're yeah. wound up. They're trying to prove something. And, you know, sometimes it, it usually bites you, bites you in the end. Well, Keeboom, again, talking about young young players, he had another opportunity to come into the game at a really crucial uh, point in the game as a pitch hitter, and he his at-bat was really terrible. He struck mm-hmm. out. I mean, it, it, it was not a good at-bat at all. Um, and, and that at-bat showed that he might be pressing a little bit because uh, it didn't seem like he was seeing that ball at all. Yeah, and it, it looks like, honestly, you know, um, you know, it's one of those things, again, with young guys that haven't had a lot of experience in the, in the big show, um, they, they feel that pressure, especially in, in pitch hit situations. And uh, Keyboom has even more of a shadow considering who he's replacing in Anthony Rendon. So, you know, uh, again – you know, like like we mentioned before, it may be best if Carter Keyboom gets a little bit more time in the minors to refine his skills, you know, get his eye, get his batting eye a little bit sharper, and then come up to the major leagues with with more confidence. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the key for these young players. I mean, even in game two, uh Rainey, as he's he's someone that I think the organization looks at as a potential closer. Or as a key portion of the Nats bullpen, mm-hmm. and yet he came in and uh, you know he he struggled. I mean, Strasburg had a really really good game. Yes. I, you couldn't yep. tell me that we weren't going to win. Strasburg only gives up one hit in six innings, and we, well, our bats were cold too. So mm-hmm. I mean, uh, let, let's let's keep in mind it was second game of a double header where they played the previous day right so it was a third mm-hmm. game in like 20 something 26 hours mm-hmm. so in that regard um you gotta think maybe some of the guys their legs are a little tired and but we we couldn't get any runs across the plate yeah yeah absolutely and so the tiredness thing you gotta you gotta think you know this is the first series that you're you're in and you've played three games in 20-some hours. I mean, you're getting the game two of the – you're getting game two of the doubleheader. I'm sure they were exhausted right, being out sure. there. Even with the seven-inning game that you had before, they're probably exhausted. So I'm not surprised that we didn't score any runs in the, in the second but, game. But, you know, you, yeah, I think the Braves were exhausted too. 
I tell mm-hmm. you who wasn't exhausted. That panda. That big old panda. <laughs> that big old panda Pablo. came out there. <laughs> <laughs> that big old panda came out here like, oh, like he looked like him. Like he was some, like a steak and he hadn't eaten in like <laughs> three weeks. He looked at Rainy like, okay. <laughs> this is what you're me. <laughs> and uh, uh, Pablo Sandoval is a guy that you know, he was with the Giants when they were winning World Series, you know, yes. We would face them. We would yep. face them every year. Yep. We would win the division every year, play yep. the San Francisco Giants, and they would beat us. And this guy, uh, Pablo Sandoval, would, would – would. <laughs> he was playing third base then, right? Yes, he was playing third then. I, yeah. Honestly, as big as he is, I didn't know how he was able I know. to play third. He, he light on his feet. Boy, I bet you can dance. He looked like a dude that can dance. <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably. But the, the funny thing is, Pablo Sandoval, from talking how they were talking on Masson, he was struggling to find a job um, before this season. And, and the Braves picked him up. I guess they just picked him up for his bat. But clearly it paid off here as he had a homer um, in the seventh. as the only two runs uh, of, of game two. So Yeah. Well, you know, I saw him play in spring training as well, and he was mashing the ball in spring training. So certainly, be, per, perhaps because he was playing so well in spring training, they were confident, like, hey, he's still got a good bat. And certainly it's paid off for him, for the Braves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So ultimately, let's talk about who had the biggest impact for the series and who struggled. Uh, so as far as impact, certainly Juan Soto, mm-hmm. you've got to say that he had the biggest impact on our win, essentially, because he had the game winner, even yeah. though he was 0 for 5. But Trey Turner played really well uh, during our during the season overall as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and Trey, and, and Trey just, just for the viewers here that, that love the numbers, uh, Trey is already currently hitting 273 for the team. That is third on the team for average. Again, this is only through three games. He already has two home runs and four RBI. So, again, you know, just at 12 plate appearances, he's already got two home runs and four RBI. That's a really, really good start for him. Right. So, um, he, like I said before, his approach um, to the plate now um, has improved over last year. And I'm, I'm excited to see him in that, what he's going to do in that second slot. Yeah. And I also think Robles had a really good series as well. Mm-hmm. I'm encouraged by that one, two combination um, going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And actually Robles is actually hitting a better uh, batting average than uh, uh, Trey Turner. Uh, he's actually hitting 286. Now that number is skewed <coughs> a little bit because um, he had a couple walks. He did get four he was walked four times during the series, so um, you know that that kind of helps your your uh, your uh, batting average when you don't have a plate appearance. But him having four walks and twelve plate appearances, that is really good. That's excellent. Absolutely. <clears throat> well, who, well, okay. We talked about who um, who had a, a big impact. Like, well, let's talk about who struggled. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think you can agree with me, Lala, that the uh, bullpen struggle, um, you know, uh, uh, Suero specifically in, in that second game, uh, the the 
the first game of the doubleheader, uh, he struggled. Um, the young guys out of the pen struggled. Yeah. Um, uh, Fetty definitely struggled. I mean, yeah. that was just a bad situation uh, that happened in that top of that second inning. And then Carter Keeboom, as we said, he's he's still continuing to struggle as well. Yeah, agree, agree. Well, our next ser- series is actually on the road. We play the L.A. Dodgers. Uh, what we know thus far is that Joe Ross has been named the starter for the opening series. So that suggests that uh, neither Patrick Corbin nor John Lester is expected to be cleared to be in uniform for that for that series. Um, now, the Nats haven't named the starters, the other starters for the series, but if if they needed it, Max Scherzer would be on normal rest to pitch the finale against the um, Dodgers. So unless Corbin or Lester is ready to go on Saturday, that could leave us with Austin Volk as the fully rested starter. Mm. So. That would be interesting. Austin is a, a young guy. I know he's been up and down from the from – the, Miners in the in the majors for a couple years now. I think he was out of the pen too, like Fetty, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so um, it'll be interesting to see what he can do in the spot start. Um, hopefully, he does better than Fetty does. He's got to get more than like two or three innings. He's got to go four innings. Mm-hmm. He's got to go four innings um, because you can't. I mean, we you cannot tax our the rest of the um, the bullpen if he starts so yeah so the lineup for now um against the dodgers we're still going to be without josh bell we'll still be without um kyle schwaber um we're still going to be without josh harrison jan gomes and alex avila so good luck to us and (laughs) walker bueller is starting for the dodgers in game one yeah, I think I think with this, um, you know, I think we're just in survival mode again, just like we were in this series. I wouldn't, you know, Nash fans, I wouldn't take the first couple of these series, these series too seriously because again, we're out a lot of guys. And as y'all know, with the World Series season that we have, we kind of start slow. Um, even with our guys out, you know, to be honest with you, we still look really good. Yeah. With the guys out. Sure. So I'm not I'm not gonna be um too upset if you know we may lose two out of three to the defending World Series champions, the Dodgers. So, you know, just keep that frame of mind that you know we're down a lot of guys. It's early in the season, and we are gonna be facing the World Series champions with fans in the stands. So they're probably oh, you know going oh. next to hype. So and um for insult on top of injury, um, they're also getting their rings and being presented with oh, their World Series good. rings uh, before the game. Ooh. Something that the Nats were unable to do because of COVID last year. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, that so, hurts. Yeah, so they're going to be extra hyped for, for this series then. For sure. All right. So now transitioning over to other sports. So now we're going on to a segment called This Week in Sports. So just to start off the top, y'all probably heard that longtime assistant Hubert Davis has been hired as the new coach of uh, UNC. Uh, Coach Williams actually just stepped down after the end of this season. 
Um, you know, shout out to Hubert Davis. He is the first uh, black man to be um, head coach of uh, the UNC Tar Heels. How did you feel about that hire, Mom? Wow. I mean, the South is a changing. That's all I can say. <laughs> the South is a changing. That, the ACC North Carolina Tar Heels, the same North Carolina team that used to um, come to the games with pictures of apes and things of that nature uh, when 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 Georgetown would play them, the same North Carolina team that at times would you know, God awful say things when they would come up here to play mm -hmm. the Maryland and the Virginia team. Mm -hmm. I'm excited that um, that uh, Hubert Davis has been um, named the coach. Uh, I, I thought that they might go old fogey white guy for this next <laughs> hire, but I'm really glad that they didn't. Yeah, I am too. And, you know, Dean Smith, God rest his soul, uh, was very transformative in, in kind of the you know, uh, uh, the, the fight for equality in the South. Uh, Dean Smith was the person that, you know, talking to people, um, he was very uh, forward and progressive in his thinking about race. And I'm sure that Dean Smith is probably looking down and saying, you know, good job, that this needed yeah. to be done. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously uh, this hire wouldn't have happened unless Michael Jordan said it needed to happen. Oh, so I hadn't thought about that aspect of it. I love yeah. it. And now I didn't understand this was that Hubert Davis is good friends with Michael Jordan. So there may have been, um, you know, probably with Coach Williams. Coach Williams was getting up there in age. There was probably already a discussion going on even before this season of, hey, what do we do if Coach Williams retires? So it, it's, it doesn't shock me that a decision on who the next UNC coach happened relatively quickly. Um, but Hubert Davis has been on that staff for years. He's years. qualified. Yes. He probably should yes. have been hired to that position four or five years ago, quite honestly. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, they didn't want to get Coach Williams up out of the seat. You sure. know, they wanted to allow him to ride off in the sunset the way that he did. But Hubert Davis absolutely deserves the job. I didn't know this when I when I was doing research um, on Hubert Davis that UNC has a JV team that actually plays prep schools and other JV teams around the country. JV like high school JV? No, like a JV team with college players. So they actually have a team that is comprised of students. At UNC. Ooh, like a club, like a club yes. team almost. Yes. Oh, I would have been on. Right. I would have tried to make a club team. <laughs> <laughs> I would too. And the crazy <laughs> thing is, the crazy thing is, is that just because they weren't scholarship players, they almost got all the same benefits mm. as scholarship players. So they were getting the jersey, the Jordan jerseys. They were getting <laughs> the shoes. Hubert Davis was the head coach of the JV team for twelve years. What? Like, Yes. I did not know that. That's yes. Excellent. So, and they got to play in the Dean Dome every time that they played a home game. So, you know, they were saying that there were some players that actually play on the team now that actually came up through the JV team. Oh, that that's They initially cool. started, yeah, they started as regular students. They tried out for the JV team. 
they were good enough and they became on the varsity team. So, so all yes. you high school students out there who mm -hmm. still have a dream alive and you can get into uh, UNC on, on academically, you know, maybe you don't have to hang up your, your, your sneakers so soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're, you know, I hope that, you know, I know some colleges are going through financial trouble, but once this pandemic is over, I would love to see more schools do that, you know, have a JV team and, and support that because there are a lot of basketball players specifically that still have those hoop dreams. So, and speaking of hoop dreams, um, I'm sure all of us saw, um, all of our DMV family saw both the women's and men's uh, NCAA national championship that happened this past week. Uh, yep. First, we could talk about uh, the men's final, um, Baylor against Gonzaga. I mean, if you saw that game, you just saw it look like to me grown men versus yes. uh, uh, YMCA team. <laughs> and, the, and the YMCA team was the undefeated team. Yeah, Gonzaga was moving up and down the court and fast breaking and doing all that and you know against UCLA and against some of those other teams. Against Baylor, they looked like they were in a totally different class. Totally different class. And I, you know, um our brother came over yesterday um for a short visit and we were talking about um the game. And the one thing that stuck with me, what he said was Baylor looked like they lift with the football team. Which brother said that? Who said that? Snooky oh, or Carter? Carter. Carter. Okay. He said Baylor's basketball team looks like they lift with the football team. Yeah, they do. They do. They look like a bunch of grown men. And when I tell you that, that was that that shows you the difference. I think in my mind between a team that plays in the Big Twelve, where the Big Twelve is Kansas, Texas. All these big time schools that that it's a competitive league versus the what where Gonzaga plays in was the West Coast Conference where they just rolled over everybody. Now, do you think this diminishes Gonzaga's perfect season at all? Uh, I think so because I, it it just shows that I think it shows that at the end of the day, it's almost like the Connecticut men's team they play. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, the Connect women's team, they play a soft schedule mm -hmm. up until they get to the the um, tournament. Absolutely. And, and it, it feels like to me, and if, you know, um, kind of I watched Baylor kind of throughout the season, they, to me, look like the best team throughout the season. It just happened to be that Gonzaga played a soft schedule mm -hmm. throughout the conference schedule. And they racked up 20 wins in a row because they were playing St. Mary's. They were playing yeah, University of San Francisco. Like, they're supposed yeah. to beat them. Yeah, if they're in the Big Ten, Pac-12, uh, SEC, AC, like, if they're in any other division, I'm not sure, some of the stronger divisions, I'm not sure that they wouldn't have any less than three or four losses. Yeah, I, I would think there would be definitely a four or five loss team. I mean, you know, Jalen Suggs is a really good player. Uh, Timmy, you know, the guy with the headband with the mustache, he's a really good player. Now, will but he go to the NBA? I mean, how many? So uh, let's, let's get real. How many okay. uh, draftable players do you think Gonzaga might have? One. Jalen Suggs. Yeah, yes. Suggs. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, one. But Baylor has 
uh, Mitchell. Uh, they had um, Timmy, number 11, the real big, thick neck guy. He's probably <laughs> going to play in the NBA. Okay. Baylor had, I would say, three or four guys that will probably get a shot at the NBA. Mitchell, 45, the guard with dreads. He's definitely getting drafted this year. I mean, okay. he looks like another Mitchell to me. He looks like Donovan Mitchell on the court who plays mm. for the Utah Jazz. Like okay. kind of this, his shiftiness um, and how he defended the pick and roll at the top of the key was – that was the best I've seen all year of mm. any team being able to guard a pick and roll that I've seen all year. So shout out to Baylor. Um, that was their first title ever in history. And again, like we had mentioned, it ended Gonzaga's perfect season. Now, transition over to the women. Uh, Stanford versus Arizona was a fantastic game. Very good game. Um, very good game. And Stanford actually was able to pull it out. That was their first NCAA title uh, right. since 1992. But again, yeah. the game was really, really, really exciting. What was your take on it, Bob? Yeah, it was a very exciting game. Certainly, um, that game could have gone either way. Uh, actually, uh, Stanford was up by one point. Arizona had the ball, I think, with uh, a couple seconds on the clock. Clearly, the everyone in the in the arena knew that McDonald was going to get the ball. And to Stanford's credit, they literally loaded four girls in her face. And instead of dropping the ball off to a person that was, you know, on the side on the side. She attempted to try to take the ball up for a three-pointer. She's going to be a phenomenal player. She's going to be a high draft pick. So uh, a super season. It was a great way to sort of end the uh, NCAA season for the women. Uh, I was very proud of the Stanford women and the Arizona women and just really excited about where women's basketball is overall right now. Absolutely. And we're going to talk later on about somebody – that I think said something that was just so outrageous about women's sports and about the value of women's sports, uh, Draymond. But we gonna we gonna hold that for another segment. I know Lala, you gonna you gonna give him some some hell about that. Oh, they gonna they gonna see me in the who's not invited to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no. Don't give it away yet, Taylor. <laughs> but uh, transitioning over to the NBA. Um, and, you know, as, as a DMV podcast, we always try to catch up with the Wizards. Um, the Wizards seem to me, I don't know if you've been watching them, uh, Lala, but they it seems like they're in tank mode at this point. Um, they did win against the Magic uh, last night. Um, it was a good win, but they're currently 18-32. Uh, the top for second to last in the Eastern Conference. They've lost four of the last five games. Um, and Beal before last night actually set out five games because of a quote hip contusion. Yeah. Um, it seems like to me that the Wizards are uh, resigned to the fact that they're not going to make the playoffs this year. They're not even going to make the playing game this year. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what's your thoughts on, on the Wizards where they are right now? I, I have the same um, outlook about this season that you do. They're in tank mode. Clearly someone uh, in, in, in the front office has said, hey, Westbrook, you might have some incentives to your contract, or maybe he doesn't, <laughs> I don't know. 
but they're allowing him just come in and break records, you know, shoot as often as he wants um, and and do his thing on the court. Hey, go have fun. Uh, But it was clear that when the opportunity to trade players came, came around, the Wizards lost an opportunity to make, I mean, if you're going to tank, tank before, you know, before the end of the trade period, right? So exactly. at least try to acquire some draft picks or exactly. something. Exactly. Um, instead, uh, instead, it's hard to watch. I mean, I watch. It's hard. That's all I can say. It's yeah, hard. it's it's tough. I mean, it's 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 like those Wizards teams that you know it was post Gilbert Arenas teams where they were just terrible. Where it was just like John Wall, young John Wall, go do something. And they would just lose the game by thirty. You know what I mean? Well, like, well, the Gilbert Arenas years—they were a bunch of knuckleheads. Seriously, <laughs> we, this is not a bunch of knuckleheads. So, in that sense, the culture is good. Gil right. and them cats was just off the chain. Hey, they was off the chain. They was winning, but they was off the chain. You know, it was, it was off, off the chain. If I'm not you mistaken, know, I think he's still getting paid from the Wizards. <laughs> I think he might still be getting paid by the Wizards. I mean, I see him on Instagram. Talking about, oh, I got my check today. So clearly he getting a check from somebody still. Uh-huh. Probably the Wizards. That's how they do Probably. Probably. But, you know, now with the, the you know, <clears throat> now with the Wizards being in take mode and them being, you know, in draft mode now, I think, you know, there is now with the NCAA tournament happening and the NBA draft coming up in June, there is some talk now of, where would the Wizards go with their draft pick? And I just wanted to give you two prospects that they could potentially go. Now, at this point, the Wizards would be picking sixth in the draft if the season ended today. So that's so a pretty they don't, they don't no, do the balls ahead. anymore? They don't do the, the balls? Uh, so the projection is based off of the the odds that are oh, actually okay. Give me number one. So, okay. Yeah, again, the Wizards could be the first pick. They could be the 15th pick. Uh, their odds, though, per how it's drawn, they could be the sixth pick. So we'll probably um, be 15th, but go ahead. We'll probably be the 15th pick. Yes, the lot, the last lottery pick. But you know, that's our luck. But um, one uh, prospect that actually has been talked about a lot um, over the past few weeks, actually uh, landing to the Wizards, is Jonathan Kaminga. Uh, actually, Jonathan Kaminga. Is a six uh, eight forward uh, that actually played for the new G League in nineteen. So if you don't know this, the G League team actually created a, a team specifically for uh, young players coming out of high school. Um, so the team was just formed this year, and they took, uh, I believe, it was five um, players that were graduating high school, and instead of going to college they offered them a G League contract for $100,000 and the ability for them to train with NBA coaches, play with NBA veterans on the team, and to get money from endorsement deals. So, you know, it's another path to the league that the league is creating, um, and I'm really excited to see where that team goes from here. But back to John. Well, wish- oh, go oh. ahead. I just wish that they would have uh, put uh, Denny Avija there last year instead of drafting <laughs> him with their first pick last year. I and, mean, clearly we could have done better. This guy's not – he is – he. Sh- when you draft as high as we 
pick last year. We should have a starter who Absolutely. contributes nightly. This guy does not. Denny is not the answer. Absolutely. And actually, this projection of a pick actually goes right to that criticism of Denny Avia. Kaminga actually plays his position. He's a three. He's no, a small okay. four. So mm-hmm. um, Kaminga's game is closer to Pascal Siakam. If you've ever seen Pascal Siakam play really long arms, really, no really thing. athletic. He's a really explosive athlete at the rim. The one bad thing is he does need to improve his three-point shooting, um, and he does struggle with rotations on the defensive end of things. I did see Jonathan Kaminga um, in high school. Um, obviously, it's hard to kind of scout people in high school because they're playing against What area kids. is he from? Where is he from? Um, he is from the north uh, north part. He's from Boston, I believe. Okay. Um, he went to school up there. So, um, actually, in the in the G League at 19, he averaged 15.7 rebounds, two assists, and one steal. Um, and, again, that's against grown men in the G League that are fighting for a job. So, he actually was able to hold his own. Um, against grown men competition. Okay. Um, yeah. So again, it's dra- we're trying to address an issue that we tried to address last year. So Tommy, I mean Tommy Shepard, come on now. Right. We, we Let's gotta, go. We got to get this right. And mm-hmm. then uh, just, I just I just wanted to bring up another under the radar prospect um, that is being talked about, and a guy that kind of has a local flavor. Um, that some of y'all may know. Uh, another guy that actually played for the, the G League at 19 is Isaiah Todd. He is a 6'10", stretch four. Uh, he was actually born in Baltimore. He was raised in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and you'll be familiar with this school, Lala. He played his freshman and sophomore years at John Marshall High School in Richmond mm. um, and actually led them to a Class three state championship uh, right. before actually – transferring to Word of God High School in North Carolina, which is the alumni of John Wall. Um, I've seen Isaiah Tyler play personally. I've seen him play. Um, this guy is one of those uh, KD types. He's mm. really long arms, long legs, super athletic and able to handle um, on, the, on the perimeter. Um, he has during his G League season. He has improved with his back down game, with his back to the basket game. I think, honestly, um, I can see him going late first, early second. I really hope he goes late second or mid to to late second so that the Wizards can take him because we need a guy like this. That is a stretch four, athletic. You can keep him, put him on the perimeter if you need to, or he can have uh, his back to the basket. So, you know, those are just two prospects that, you know, um, just to keep your eye on. No, I like that. I like that. We'll be looking out for that. Absolutely. And now, all right. for a segment that we've all been waiting for. Yeah. Is the who is not invited to the cookout. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I know Lala's been waiting for this one. Oh, All, right. Right. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> so, who y'all been wondering who's getting the nomination for not getting invited this week? For this week is Daniel Cameron, uh, Attorney General uh, of Kentucky, for not charging the officers involved in the murder of Breonna Taylor. Now, I know for everybody, 
um, you know, with the Derek Chauvin, Chauvin case that's happening in the murder of George Floyd has probably brought back memories of, of Breonna Taylor's death and, and how that district attorney, uh, Daniel Cameron, really didn't do anything in, in charging those officers. So just for a little background on Daniel Cameron, he did serve as legal counsel to Senator Mitch McConnell from 2015 to 2017. He was elected um, attorney general in 2019 um, after Breonna Taylor's murder on March 13, 2020. Uh, Cameron formed the grand jury to look into the murder. And then in September, he announced that no charges would be filed. Um, after that, obviously people were enraged. How could something like this happen in, in the offices not be uh, held accountable? In January, 2020, three jurors on that grand jury came forward and refuted the things that were said during Daniel Cameron's uh, press conference where he announced no charges. Um, and he said that the three jurors actually said that homicide charges were not even presented to the grand jury at that time. And that Cameron stated that he wouldn't even walk them through the homicide offenses. Um, he also stated that he didn't want to explore criminal charges against the officers because he, quote, couldn't make them stick. So, you know, because of his, I would say, lack of care for Breonna Taylor's life and the lack of care of, you know, holding the officers accountable uh, for Breonna Taylor's life uh, being taken away by those officers, Daniel Cameron, don't even come near the cookout, man. You're not, Do invited. not invite. You are not invited to the cookout. And y'all voters down in Kentucky, make sure y'all vote his butt out of office. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So who's who's not invited to the podcast for you? All right, I'm going to go a little bit different direction. This week for my uninvitation to the cookout <laughs> is Golden State Warrior forward Draymond Green who blamed women for making air quotes complaints rather than taking action over disparities in pay and investment in women's sports. Now, come on, man. Now, in a series of tweets, they were posted about March 27th. He said, as long as y'all make the argument about pay while the revenue stays the same, they will continue to point at the revenue not being high enough to cover bigger salaries. While that is true in damn near every business, how do we take that card out of their pockets? That's the key to changing the pay. There's no argument for lack of revenue unless you make those that say they stand for women actually stand up. Then, this clown said, the NBA wasn't always the global game that it is today. It, it wasn't always driving as much revenue as it is today, but there were people behind it building the platform and more importantly, telling individual stories and building up interest in the players. That's how the game took off. Who's building up y'all's platform? Who's telling the individual stories about how y'all are? Building an interest in transforming women's basketball into a global game, he asked. Draymond Green, sir, you are not invited to the cookout for that outlandish thought process behind women's pay in sports. I'm sure, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, L, but, you know, Draymond is is uh, 
is part of the same uh, agency as LeBron. Mm. And I wonder if after that, I wonder if after that, LeBron didn't give him a call. Well, actually, it's interesting that you say that because since then, He's tried to make some retractions, saying that he was oh. mis misunderstood. So he had, I'm oh. sure, LeBron pulled his card, but I don't care. His the true sentiment came out the first time. Oh, so I don't absolutely. care how many I don't have care how many retractions or his agent or his his people uh, rephrased his uh, his secondary post. These initial posts got him uninvited to the cookout. Absolutely, absolutely. And as always, if you if we're not inviting people. You know, we gotta we gotta give an invite out to to some people. So this week we're gonna have a little local flavor and some national flavor. So for mine, I went the local route. Uh, I went with Adele McClure, who is the director of the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus, for her work in bringing awareness to the issue of homelessness in the state of Virginia. Now Adele was born in Alexandria, Virginia, and at one point in her childhood, she did experience homelessness. Even through that, you know, experience, she was able to graduate from West Point High School in Fairfax, Virginia, and was accepted into Virginia Commonwealth University. At Virginia Commonwealth, she participated in over 22 university organizations, committees, and task force. And in 2010, she served as student body president. In 2011, she was the recipient of the VCU Division of Student Affairs Distinguished Service Award. Uh, in 2011, she went on to graduate from VCU with a degree in economics. After graduation, uh, she went on to work in the Virginia State Legislature and was eventually hired as director of the Legislative Black Caucus. As director, her focus is raising awareness of housing issues, including around uh, issues of evictions. Uh, also, uh, working. Also, she is working to improve the lives of those who are most vulnerable. Uh, in our housing system, especially during COVID right now, when people are facing uh, evictions. So for her 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 work uh, in the Virginia Legislature and her work as uh, Virginia Legislative Black Caucus, um, Adele, you are certainly invited to the podcast, or oh. certainly invited to the cookout. Yes, nice work, nice work, uh, Ms. McClure. And will that be iced tea or lemonade? Because you're definitely invited, <laughs> definitely invited to the cookout. Well, I have one last invitation. I'm going to piggyback off of my who wasn't invited to the cookout. And I'm going to invite Megan Rapino for, um, to our cookout. She has been outspoken for the push for equal pay for, for women's athletes, not just in soccer, but in all sports. And for her work in doing that, uh, I say, hey, come on over to the cookout. Absolutely. And Megan Rapino was one of the first soccer players to kneel during the national anthem. Yeah, so she, 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 you know, she's she's at the forefront of, of a lot of different, you know, social uh, issues that need to be resolved. Yeah, she's, she's an athlete that's making a difference. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's the end of our show. Thank you all for tuning in. It's been fun. Absolutely. Peace out, y'all. Till next week. All right. I hope you enjoyed that preview 
of the new podcast, uh, Microphone Check DMV. Um, if you like what you heard, again, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere where podcasts are distributed. Um, we'll be doing episodes every week, so obviously doing that uh, subscription is going to help you out in keeping up with all the goings on with this uh, podcast. So uh, please like and subscribe. Um, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and uh, hope to see you soon. All right, DMV family, we out. Peace.